Hello, and welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm talking with Associate Professor of Physics and Astronomy, Jeff Barry. Professor Barry specializes in infrared and optical spectroscopy. Thank you. Of young sun-like stars, and he is specifically interested in studying the formation of stars and planetary systems, star-disk interactions, the evolution of protoplanetary disks, extinction in dense cloud cores, and infrared spectroscopy. <laughs> Professor Barry earned his bachelor's from Emory and Henry College and his PhD at Vanderbilt University. His research has been published in numerous journals, and in 2017, he worked alongside Adam Frank of the University of Rochester and Learning Games Network to develop a mission-based online educational video game that earned the Games for Change and Mashable People's Choice Award. Outside of his teaching and research, Professor Barry is also co-director of one of Colgate's residential commons, and he hosts a regular music program on the student-run radio station, WRCU. Professor Barry, welcome to 13. Oh, Daniel, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. You teach an astronomy course titled How Old is the Universe? Yes. <clears throat> what is the answer and how does one make this calculation? Oh wow, that's a that's an interesting place to start. <laughs> uh, so, uh, the universe we we know today to be somewhere between 13.6 and maybe 13.8 billion, with a B, uh, billion, as uh, Carl Sagan used to say, uh, years old. And and that was a number that was really hard won in terms of like the scientific endeavor. It took years for us to kind of zero in on that age. But what that course is about is all of the different lines of evidence that we have that point towards that number. Um, some of those numbers actually just point towards the age of the solar system, but, but really in, in terms of the historical development of our understanding of that age, we really kind of had to start with an understanding of how old, say, the solar system uh, is, and, and part of that was determining how old the Earth is and then figuring out maybe how long the sun has been around. And that then starts to interact with some of my own research, you know, because I'm really interested in the formation and evolution of stars like the sun and their planetary systems. Um, so, uh, so we know the sun to be about 5 billion years old. So in terms of the uh, universe, it's, uh, it's a little bit over a third of the age of the universe. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we get into discussions in that class about, um, about white dwarfs because white dwarfs are burned out stars and they have a really predictable way of cooling. And so we can use these cooling curves um, that are models that predict how these dead stars will actually cool over time to get ideas of the ages of them. And those things point, point towards a very old universe, at least in our perspective, and you know, on, the, on the order of 13 billion, billion years. Um, we figure out the ages of, of globular clusters, and we use that as another marker for, for how the old universe would be. But then uh, the real, the real uh, insight came with our understanding of the expansion of the universe, and not just the fact that the universe was expanding, which pointed to a moment that we could say is like time t equals zero for the beginning of the universe, hmm. but also understanding how that expansion has changed over time or, or hasn't really changed over time, and then using that to kind of rewind the clock to predict, you know, when that time t equals uh, zero moment was uh, that we that we discussed as the Big Bang, right? Uh, think cool. of that as a hot start to the universe. So, so that class, which unfortunately I've, I've taught once, and my colleague Tom Balonic has has taught once, uh, is is based on a book called "How Old Is the Universe" that was written by my uh, PhD advisor. Oh wow, David Weintraub. So I was able to communicate with him a lot when I was uh, developing my course, and you know, stole a whole bunch of his his notes uh, when it comes to to how that course is um, is constructed. And so it really is all about uh, hopefully convincing students that we just don't kind of say the universe is 13.8 billion years old without saying that we have the scientific evidence to justify that number. You know, and, and say to, to say 13 
or 14, we can actually say 13.7 or 13.8 says something about the uncertainty in our, in our mm. understanding. Is there and a margin of error, important. like give or take a few hundred thousand years or something? Or? Yeah, well, it's, it's more like on the order of 100 million right, right. or something like that, right? But that is the uncertainty, and that, that decimal point is really important, right? Whether it's 13.6 or 13.8, that, that is a reflection of the uncertainty that we have in that measurement. But, uh, but, you know, zeroing in on that number, because it once, some, once was 50 or 100 in terms of, like, the Hubble constant that went into determining the number 13.7, that's a factor of two, right? So you could say, well, maybe the universe is 5 billion years old, or maybe it's 10 billion years old, mm -hmm. or maybe it's uh, 10 billion or 20. That would be the type of uncertainty that we may have had in the past. But now we're down to, to the level of 100 million wow. years, so... So precision, precision cosmology is what that. <laughs> so honestly, that's what that's what they refer to it now as, like precision cosmology. Hmm. So one of your specialties, as we mentioned, is infrared and optical spectroscopy. Did I did I get it this time? You got it. Yeah. All right, you nailed it. Um, of of young sun-like stars. So tell me about spectroscopy and how do the the two different modes, infrared and optical, help you study young stars? Yeah, so um, spectroscopy is key to a lot of what we do in astronomy. Uh, and it's, it's not the most straightforward of observational techniques that we have. You know, most, a lot of astronomers will take images of stars and monitor the brightnesses of stars over time. And that's just, that's just taking the light in a broad sense, in a broad sense with respect to the spectrum of light that we see. So anytime I talk about spectroscopy, I kind of have to uh, give a quick intro into, into light, yeah. right? And so everybody's familiar with rainbows, and rainbows kind of give you a sense that there's something more to that white light, say, that we get from the sun than what really meets the eye. And so if you see a rainbow, all that's happened is, is um, that white light's being broken up into its constituent colors and wavelengths. And so as a spectroscopist, that's what I seek to do with light coming from the stars, is I seek to take their, what we would think of as kind of like their white light, <clears throat> or their really broad uh, spectrum light, and break it up into its constituent colors or, or wavelengths, if you want to get really scientific about it, right? So we, we take those different energies of photons, which correspond to different wavelengths, and uh, what you find if you look really closely at those, at those uh, rainbows coming from the stars is that there's little patterns that will emerge. And it turns out that those patterns are associated with uh, the physical structure, the atomic structure of the elements that might be circling in a disk of gas and dust that is uh, uh, potentially going to form a planetary system. So I'm really interested in studying light from the gases that make up these uh, what we call protoplanetary disks. And disks mean just that they have this geometrical structure that looks like a disk. And so uh, we expect planetary systems to form within those disks orbiting. In this case, I, I'm really interested in stars like the sun, so I say sun-like stars. And um, those, that spectroscopy gives me some sense of how the gas is moving around uh, the star. Sometimes it gives me a sense of how the material is actually uh, accreting, which means it's falling onto that central star. And so the central star acts as a bit of a, a sinkhole for that material that's in the disk. And 20 years ago when I started uh, you know, doing scientific research as a graduate student, we didn't know that there were planets out there around most stars. And so we weren't sure how efficient this planet formation process would, would be around most stars. So one of the things that we were concerned that may happen that might prevent planets from forming around most stars was that that material would get sucked down to the star itself before it had a chance to evolve into planetary systems. Um, of course, we now know that it looks like planets must form in most cases, right? We've, when I was young, we at least, when I was, when I was young, when I was a grad student, we knew that, that most stars formed with these disks of material that gave them the opportunity to make planetary systems. What we didn't know was just how frequently they actually evolved to planetary systems. Now we know that it's pretty much 100% of the time they're going to evolve into planetary systems. Oh, that, that goes right into my next question about protoplanetary disks. So, you know, how big are these things? Where is the nearest protoplanetary disk? Is that is that a reasonable question? Uh, yeah, those are question? good questions. Yeah, yeah, those are good questions. Uh, what you would expect if they're going to be similar to the solar system, that their sizes should be comparable to what you would think the early solar system would have, would have looked like. Uh, and the way that I would 
teach my students about this is I would give them maybe Pluto uh, as a marker, just a, a rough marker. And Pluto's orbital distance from the sun is, is uh, about 50 times that of the Earth-Sun distance. Uh, any disk that would have formed the planetary system was likely several times bigger than that, maybe 10 times bigger oh, than wow. that, right? So uh, if, if we really try to put a bound on the solar system, we would go out to this thing we call the Oort cloud. And the Oort cloud um, is out to about a third of the distance to the nearest star, which puts it out to about maybe a light year f from the sun. Uh, and what makes up the Oort cloud uh, are just these little icy chunks of debris that's left over from the planet formation process mm -hmm. in the inner part of that disk. Uh, that material is actually distributed more spherically than than disk-like, like we like we see the really dense parts of the material that would go into making planetary systems. Um, so, so when we look out into uh, space, we see little clusters of young stars. It turns out that stars don't form uh, by themselves; they actually like to form as groups. Uh, and they form as groups from larger clouds. And within these clouds that have gotten uh, really cold, you know, on the order of like 10 Kelvin, which is getting down there, right, they, gravity starts to take over and gravity uh, will cause uh, the, the cloud to, to collapse in little localized regions. We would think of it as fragmentation. Mm -hmm. And that little trigger that starts that formation process is not extremely well understood right now. It's, 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 an area, it's a rich area of research in, in star formation. Uh, but anyway, it happens, uh, and these clouds will start to collapse, and they fragment into little uh, localized high-density regions, and that will form individual systems. Now, 50% of the time, those individual systems are not just solitary stars like the sun is, but actually binary star systems, so you would form two stars together. Uh, but in that process, the disks will form around uh, both of those stars, and potentially a larger disk would would form about the whole system, something that we would call a, a circumbinary disk. Um, it, so we look out and we see those, and we can, if we know the distances to those uh, star-forming clusters, we can get an estimate of what the physical sizes of those disks are. And you know, they are all about you know a few hundred AU in in radius, mm -hmm. and that's exactly what we would expect based upon um, the extent of the solar system. So in 2014, you were part of an international collaboration of astronomers to publish an article in Nature about the discovery of a planet-forming lifeline in a nearby triple star system. Can you tell us about that work and its importance to our understanding of how planets form? Yeah, it, it connects to that uh, last comment I made about the stars forming in, in binary systems and that 50% of stars form in binary systems. That's the and, lifeline? Uh, well, uh, no, the lifeline it has to do with the material uh, oh. that is, is in orbit about the two stars. Okay. So this one system that we were looking at, it had always been thought to be just a binary, actually quadruple star system, but one of the two uh, pairs in the quadruple star system because they were broken up into a binary and a binary, and then the two binaries, the two double star systems were gravitationally bound to one another, mm. right? So the total system was a four star system. One of the systems, one of the double star systems in that quadruple system, that's a lot of, that's a lot of systems and a lot of different numbers to keep track of, but, but one of the pairs has this really massive, what we call circumbinary disk. So it's a disk of material that orbits both of the, of the stars. And uh, if you look close enough, you can see that, that the primary, like the slightly brighter star of the, of the two, has a nice little disk around it itself. So inside of this circumbinary disk, there happens to be uh, a circumstellar disk around what we call the primary star in the system. And then, then its companion doesn't happen to have much of a disk around it itself. But it turns out it has a companion. So it's really a, a quintuple star system. And this one binary system turned out to be a triple system. And so that, that discovery came out right before the Nature paper. And so one of the things that, that has really come up for us when we're thinking about how planets form uh, sort of in a, in a way that's kind of writ large over, over the galaxy is that do they form in binary systems or do they not? Is maybe is the what scientists would call the dynamical complexity, meaning that all these gravitational interactions of all these multiple stars, will they interact with material that might go into forming planets in such a way as to disperse that material and not allow planets to form? Right, which would keep 
planet formation at a minimum in those systems and maybe make planets very rare around um, you know 50% of the stars in the sky. Hmm. It's a really interesting problem, and it was one that we had ignored early on in our discoveries of, of exoplanets because uh, the earliest surveys selected only singular stars to observe and kicked out the binaries because they thought that binaries wouldn't be the best place to, to look for, for um, exoplanets. Well, it turns out that exoplanets do exist in orbits around uh, binary systems. They're, in some systems, they will orbit just one of the two stars, and in other systems, they'll orbit both yeah. of the stars. Yeah. So, so those circum... That, in Gigi Tau, which is the name of the system that I was describing, in Gigi Tau, um, you, could pretend, you could imagine maybe a planet forming in the circumstellar disk around the primary, or you could think of maybe a planet forming in that larger circumbinary disk that goes around both of the stars, or now I guess all three of the stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we were really, really interested in the likelihood of, of planets forming around that primary star, just the single star, even though it has a companion. Um, would that be possible? And the only way we think that would be possible is if there was a way of getting material onto that disk, meaning that it continually is replenished by the material that's in the circumbinary disk. Because what would happen, um, based upon my other studies, like where I'm taking spectra of stars and watching that material sort of fall onto the central star, and it drains the material from from the disk, um, it's pretty effective at draining material from the disk. So if, if in this binary system, these two stars have somehow cut themselves off from the material in the circumbinary, um, that the process of moving material onto the central stars is going to be such that you're going to deplete the circumstellar disk of its planet-making material very likely in short order, meaning that planets might not have a chance to form. But we take an image of it and we see that the circumstellar disk is still there, so we know something must be going on, huh. that there's very likely a lifeline, right, that there is some way of siphoning some of that material from the larger circumbinary disk inward to the circumstellar um, disk. And that's what we discovered, right? And that's what that Nature paper was about, was here's this clear evidence that shows this line of material that came from um, it came from an observation. Our, our image of it came from an observation with ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array in the Atacama Desert in Chile, oh, wow. which is at about 16,000 feet uh, above sea level. And it's an awesome place to, to make these types of observations in what's considered the radio part of the spectrum. And so we're getting this sort of radio light, and this radio light um, uh, has a mission associated with carbon monoxide gas. And so the CO gas was emitting, and the CO gas we could see was was confined to a little, little like spindle of an arm, which we call a streamer of material that was moving from the larger disk inward towards the smaller disk and providing, you know, is providing material to keep to keep replenishing and maintain um, the circumstellar disk potentially, you know, long enough to make a planet around that individual uh, star. That's really neat. That's what it is. Yeah. So, so you know, they made uh, like there was a press release, and the press release had the two stars and showed this little uh, cool, cool streamer of gas uh, and dust that was falling in towards towards the star. One of the re- reasons that I got involved in that project was that uh, a few years earlier, a collaborator Tracy Beck uh, of mine, who is down at uh, the Space Telescope Science Institute. She and I had taken images with Gemini North, which is eight meter telescope out in Mauna Kea, uh, with an instrument that she's probably one of the world's foremost experts on. Uh, and we saw emission from gas that was really close to those inner stars. It was very close to the circumstellar disk around the primary. At that time, us not knowing that there was really a disk around the circum, the circum primary, primary. But we were like, well, how did that material get in there if it's not being siphoned in from this this larger disk. Mm-hmm. So that really um, motivated the ALMA study for us to come in. And so we partnered with this group of uh, French astronomers predominantly who are experts in, in radio astronomy and, and got the time on ALMA and then came up with that beautiful picture of the CO, CO streamer of gas, carbon monoxide streamer of gas moving in towards the central star. Oh, neat. Is there, you know, coming off of all of the research that you have done through the years, and, and I, I wonder if there is a specific technology that you kind of wish you had that hasn't been invented yet. Like, what's the one thing you wish you could see that you would have a tool for um, that just hasn't been created? 
if you could build something. Oh, geez. Yeah. Hmm. Well, so the, one of the things that I've always wanted to get involved in is uh, measuring the atmospheres of these exoplanets. It's one of those things that I was, uh, I was hoping that I would, I would manage to figure out how to get into. And, and um, we're just getting there, okay. right, as a, as a discipline. And uh, so I have some colleagues that have been doing, trying to do this for a while, but it's a technologically challenging, uh, you know, undertaking. So what you want to do is somehow measure the composition of the atmospheres of these exoplanets, and they don't really emit very much light. Mm. So if you're thinking about trying to take a spectrum of them, you're probably not going to get enough light to get a spectrum. You might, at best, be able to get a, uh, an image of them, which is just a collection of all the light. You know, you're not breaking the light up into its, its rainbow, and, and by doing so, making it fainter. You'd make it brighter just by staring at all the light coming from them. So now we're getting to the point where you can get spectra of these exoplanets, and in those spectra, there should be the little signatures associated with what the um, elements are that are floating around in the atmospheres of, of the planets. Uh, that's all about getting enough light for the most part and okay. having having what we would call enough signal so that it's not overwhelmed by the noise uh, associated with the light coming from the source. So I don't that's not a super creative uh, uh, technology, but but it's all about just getting enough yeah. light and, and getting the spectra of the of the atmospheres of the of the planets because that's going to tell us that's that's going to eventually lead us to to find biological markers. Mm. Right, so if we're really interested in determining if what has happened here is completely unique in the galaxy or the universe, um, we may want to look at these other planets and see if there's evidence of life, even if it's not intelligent life, but but life of some sort. That's a good segue to my next question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I find it impossible, and I'm sure you encounter this all the time, to talk with someone about the universe without talking about aliens at some point, right? Right. Uh, I'm curious as to your thoughts, and maybe you can explain for folks that don't know, about the Drake equation. Oh, the Drake and, equation. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah, what you think about it and um, – yeah. Yeah, so I, I think the Drake equation is uh, a perfect motivator for a discussion about in intelligent life and intelligent life that we can actually communicate with because that really is part of the factors that go into the to the Drake equation. Uh, for people out there who don't know what the Drake equation is, it's named after Frank Drake and um, the story goes, and I'm not probably the best person to tell this story, but I, I heard Adam, you know, Adam Frank, who uh, I'd worked on that textbook with and then the video game with, he was just here a week ago and gave a talk, and uh, he mentioned the Drake Equation. And it goes back to West Virginia, which is I'm so happy to get the opportunity <laughs> to mention, mention my home state. Um, Green Bank Observatory, which is a radio observatory in, in a, one of the largest radio quiet zones in the, in the United States, hmm. is down there in Pocahontas County uh, in, in West Virginia. And it opened back in the oh, late 50s, early 60s. And around that time, Frank was there for a meeting with some other astronomers. And they started kicking around the idea about life in the universe and would it be possible to communicate or detect them or something like that with, with these radio antenna. And so uh, that motivated a discussion about, well, what's the likelihood that we would actually uh, make contact? And that is rooted in, in, in like, well, how frequent is intelligent life in, in the galaxy? And so he then started saying, well, these are the factors that we might need to consider. Uh, and some of those he started with, well, all right, here's our, our, the number of stars we have in the galaxy. And then of those number of stars, how many might have planets? Of those number of planets, uh, how many might be in the right location that you could form in intelligent life? Um, then of those that have the right condition, how many conditions, how many of those have actually produced the life and of that life that's been produced, uh, how much of it has evolved towards intelligence. And then of that that's evolved towards intelligent, what, what's their lifetime, right? Cause that lifetime is going to, to determine our ability to communicate. Um, and so that's pretty much all of the factors that kind of go into the Drake equation. It's pretty grueling, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of tough things to accomplish like as part of that equation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're, we're, how, do you, how do you zero in on those factors? So you start with 400 billion stars, so you know one number. We think we, we think have a good estimate of the number of stars in the, uh, uh, in the galaxy. But when he wrote this in the 60s, 
right? Wrote, or he and his colleagues wrote this down in the 60s, that we were it. The solar system was it. Well, shoot, the solar system was it until 1995 when we discovered 51 Pegasus, right? So um, we weren't even sure that there were other planets out there. So the, the, we could have been very pessimistic at that point and said, you know, there's absolutely no chance. Uh, and stopped it like, well, there's 400 billion stars, but there's really one, <laughs> one planet that's capable of supporting life. And then we got into the 90s and we started discovering planets. And, and that started to give us maybe a little bit of insight into answering that. Well, how many of these stars, these 400 billion stars, have planets? Um, not worrying about what type of planets, just do they, do they have planets? Uh, but those initial detections of exoplanets uh, were only really big planets like Jupiter, so they were all gas giants. And, of course, we didn't think gas giants would be places, and we still don't think that gas giants would be places to harbor life or intelligent life. Um, but then we knew that at the time that our detection techniques were going to be sensitive only to the biggest planets mm -hmm. and really the planets that were going to be potentially too close to their stars to have a temperature that might support, uh, you know, liquid water or something like that, that we think is important for life. So um, then, let's see, then we started uh, in, I guess, 2009. We launched Kepler, the Kepler mission, and the Kepler mission uh, was, was uh, dedicated towards uh, studying transits of exoplanets, Transits meaning that um, a little exoplanet would pass between us and its host star. And the moment that it does that, or the time that it does that, because it happens over a little period of time, but when it does that, the light from the star would actually be dimmed by some small fraction associated with the area of the, of the exoplanet. And so Kepler was going to be sensitive enough to see the, the light from a, a distant star diminish by, uh, I can't, it's like 0.008%, something like that. So like a very small fraction of light is going to be decreased coming from this star based upon an Earth-sized planet passing between us and its hosts, say, like some sun-like star. Okay. That mission stared at 140,000 stars for four years. So you needed to have really good statistics because the orientation of the exoplanet systems may not be along our line of sight. Mm. So there could be tons of stars out there that have planets going around them, but we never see the light from the star diminish because that planet's just never going to pass between us and its host star. So you need to study a whole bunch of them. So, they, so Kepler stared at a patch of the sky in the constellation Cygnus, which lies right in the uh, plane of the, the Milky Way. And so there was a star, it was a rich star field. Uh, and after a few years, you know, they started detecting exoplanets like gangbusters, right? And um, the statistics that that provided us suggest that nearly every star in the sky has a, has a planet. Uh, and then some fraction of those we know are going to be Earth-like planets. So now, now we're getting to the point where we can, we can constrain with real data some of the uh, factors that went into the Drake Equation. And, and that has really brought the Drake equation back to the fore of the discussion because we can say, well, we know this number. We know how many stars there are. We know how many of these stars have planets. We know what fraction of those planets potentially are, are terrestrial, like Earth-like. And now we're getting to the point where we can say, well, we know what fraction of those are going to be in what we call the habitable zone, which is at about the right distance where we would expect water to exist uh, as a liquid. Um, and then... And then from there, the, the biologists kind of have to take over, right, and tell us, like, what's the likelihood of, of life evolving um, and then life evolving towards intelligence. Mm -hmm. Then um, the thing that we're running into today now, and, and I guess one of the things for me when Kepler started to, to answer this question about how uh, frequent are exoplanets in, in the galaxy, and when it started to come back, it's like, well, they're everywhere. I was like, huh. That means that there's a really high likelihood or a good chance for intelligent life to spring up elsewhere in the galaxy. And this is something that, that Adam was talking about, too. And I, the two of us uh, had conversations years ago, and um, we found that we were thinking the same, the same way about this. And so I'm glad he's gone out and he's, he's written this really interesting book kind of based upon what we're learning, what, what, the, what the lack of our ability to make contact with other intelligent civilizations may be telling us about ourselves, mm. right? And so if, if life is, is prevalent in the universe, 
and we can't make contact with it, and you go back to the Drake equation and you look and you say, well, well why can't we make contact? There's this one um, uh, factor at the end of the equation, which is that lifetime factor of, uh, of intelligent civilizations. And if you make that lifetime factor really small in terms like the lifetime, then it may be pretty easy to explain how you could have life uh, be abundant in, in the galaxy, but not uh, easy to communicate with because uh, the likelihood that we would overlap in this history of this, like, whatever, 10 billion year old galaxy or something like that. If, if we're only around for, say, 500 years with the ability to communicate, 500 years is a blink of the eye in, in these cosmological timescales. And so um, the galaxy may have these, if, if you like think, this is how I kind of describe it, is if you think about looking down on the plane of the Milky Way uh, and just think of how all these flash bulbs going off, like you're at a baseball, postseason baseball game, and everybody's snapping pictures of, you know, Barry Bonds when he was hitting home runs left and right. They, it's uh, uh, it's maybe like that with intelligent civilizations, right? As they just kind of flash on, and they, they don't ever really flash at exactly the same time. That's a neat way to frame it. Yeah. Think about it. Yeah, so I'm afraid that may be what we're learning. And I say afraid because that may mean that, that um, our experiment here of civilization uh, is destined is is destined to kind of mm. kill itself off in in what you know, on cosmological scale would be short order and the answer to the equation was something like anywhere from a thousand to like 100 million right Dep- oh. depending on the variables right yeah yeah but still high I think a thousand's a lot even if you go worst case scenario right right I you know so there's a there's a couple things that go into that like is is uh, um, do we understand evolution well enough uh, to know that uh, we can put a real uh, constraint on the, statist- the statistical likelihood that any kind of life is going to evolve towards intelligence or, or what that evolution is going to, to look like? So I think that when we talk about the unknowns now in the Drake equation, well, the astronomers have done a pretty good job so far, I think, of, of, of answering some of those factors we now really have to think hard about the bio- biological uh, factors. Yeah. That's right. The biology. <laughs> I, I, you know, what we do is pretty straightforward. What those biologists do is there's so many. The, the complexity, in my mind, for what the biologists are interested in is, is, is vastly, vastly more difficult than, than what we do. So ignoring intelligent life outside of our solar system or the Milky Way, um, what do you think is the most interesting unanswered question about the cosmos that you'd like to see answered in your lifetime? <laughs> but that's a good one. So the most uninteresting, un- unanswered question. I, you know, there. Uh, and so let me let me tell you what I think is one of the most interesting questions that we have answered here recently. Okay. Maybe maybe that'll give me a chance. Sure. To <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, we just discovered gravitational radiation, gravitational waves, um, and um, man, that was a that was a big win. Because this was something that Einstein had predicted back in the early 1900s, uh, and we had no evidence of it. And mm-hmm. one of the reasons we didn't have any evidence of it is because it's an extremely challenging measurement to make. Because gravitational waves are really weak, uh, but what they are, they're actual little oscillations in the fabric of space and time, right? Whatever that means. I think that's a really complicated uh, <laughs> thing to, time to imagine, yeah. you know. But the fact that space and time are connected in some way is, is, is a really strange, strange concept, but, but bears out, you know, in, in the way that nature appears to, to work. Uh, and so we, we managed to detect gravitational radiation. I think one of the things that we're still not clear on is, like, how do we understand the intersection of quantum mechanics with, with general relativity? And so when we're thinking about those what might be called gravitational effects, like some like quantum gravitation, uh, how that intersects with um, with Einstein's equations and 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 representation of gravity, I think that maybe is the next one of the next big things. Although the expansion history of the universe is still getting some uh, attention and like some renewed attention, uh, I've seen a couple articles here recently that are are saying that that thirteen point Seven billion may not be as well constrained as we thought, because we're getting some data now that's calling, calling that into question. So that's kind of exciting too, right? Uh, eventually, figuring out what's going on at these really large distances, 
that we're trying to, to, to take measurements that will infer what the expansion history of the universe has been. I think that's really, that's really exciting stuff, too. Um, I'm, I'm still interested in the formation of, of planets, too, and um, uh, you know, how these things really evolve. How do these planets like ours build up from just little dust grains? Mm. So we, st we still are not quite there in, in terms of understanding the time scales involved because we, we thought, <laughs> which appears to be absolutely wrong, but we thought that a planet like a Jupiter might take about uh, a million years to form. Hmm. But Alma, that same, in, that same uh, group of telescopes that we had used to discover the lifeline in that system, has gotten these incredible images of the disks uh, of, of gas that, that we think form planetary systems around a host of nearby stars in these young star-forming clusters. And, and the images that they return show these beautiful little gaps in the disks. And we expected those things should exist if planets are forming. And so what happens when a planet forms in a disk? It, it, it will feed off of the material and it will grow. And as it grows, it will evacuate you know, these little like annuluses around the central star. And now we've got pictures that show these gaps in the disks, which it just blew my mind the first time I saw them because it was evidence showing that what we've always thought about the planet formation process was kind of right. What was unexpected, though, is that uh, some of these disks that have these uh, gaps in them are extremely young. Hmm. So it seems like the time scales involved with making planets uh, are much shorter than we had initially thought. And I don't think we have, we don't have a good explanation for that, really, as to like why planets can form just so, so darn quickly. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm, that's one of the questions that I'm personally interested in, in us kind of coming to a, a, an understanding of. But in terms of like the big, th big things too, I think that whole quantum gravity and um, uh, Einstein's relativity, solving that, uh, um, uh, I guess the connection between those two is really important. In 2017... You were part of a team that developed an educational video game where students take the helm of their own spaceship and explore the universe. Can you talk a bit about developing a video game? And have you heard from any children that have played it? <laughs> well, so uh, I kind of backed in. Yeah. I was the most unlikely person in the world probably <laughs> to, to create a video game. And the way I kind of backed into that was uh, I got involved in the textbook uh, which is called At Play in the Cosmos. And uh, Adam was writing that with W.W. W. Norton. And early on in the process, they were asking people to review some early chapters that he had written. And so I reviewed some, and, and they kept asking me to do a little bit more. And then the next thing you know, I'm really making significant contri contributions to the, to the textbook. And when they finally signed me on to, to do that, they were like, oh, yeah, and, and, and down the road, we're thinking that we're going to make a video game. And, I, and, you know, I'm just like, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> whatever. Uh, and then uh, the time came to make the video game. Yeah. And uh, we were looking around for, for people uh, who make video games. And specifically, we were looking for designers who were making learning or educational vi video games. And I remember one of our first like phone cons, we'd had this conversation and the, the media director um, or media editor at WW Norton like mentioned a couple. And so I got online and like uh, pulled their websites up. And one of the first ones that I pulled up was this uh, uh, Learning Games Network, the LGN. They've now changed their name to like Gear Learning. Uh, and on the front cover was a friend of mine from Hamilton who had just huh. recently left, uh, Christian Schmieder. Christian had been a language intern here uh, and, and had married one of the, the librarians, <laughs> Jesse Henderson. And, and they uh, had just recently moved out to Wisconsin, to, to Madison. And so this was a group that was affiliated with the University of Wisconsin. And, and Christian had gone there to get his Ph.D., making learning video games and studying them, their effect, efficacy. And so that put us in touch. And then eventually uh, Norton hired them to help us build, build the game. So that's a pretty interesting, that's a, that's a great Colgate connection to, to this whole uh, endeavor. Although Christian eventually moved into a different group and wasn't hugely involved in the, in the construction of the game, which is un unfortunate. But um, so, so the idea behind the game was is that it would do a few things, right? One, it would um, just get students interested in the content in a way that, that we, we kind of struggle to get them interested these days. Uh, students, students come in with a with a 
bunch of different experiences than I came into an introductory astronomy class. And, and part of their experience, experiences now are, are pretty focused on digital stuff and digital learning um, techniques or, or, or uh, modules or whatever you, you might call those things. And so the idea behind the video game is that it would kind of meet them where they are. Uh, and I wasn't completely sold on the idea at first, uh, but then when we started de developing it, and I really got to think about how could we use this video game to put the students in the position of being a scientist, right, of, of kind of going through the scientific process, then I started, then the whole idea started to win me over <laughs> a little bit. And, and so we eventually developed the game such that there are these little tools that they use on their spacecraft, and the tools are rooted in uh, some of the most important uh, concepts, astronomical concepts that anybody would teach in an introductory astronomy course. And so they have to use these uh, to succeed in missions because it's a mission-based, narrative-driven game is what it turned out to be. And so you have your own spaceship with lasers, which I found was very important that they, they needed to be able to blow <laughs> some stuff lasers. up. Yeah, you got to be able to blow some stuff up. And then, um, uh, you know, they kind of go through and, and they have to like save the universe, and uh, which not uh, a, a difficult uh, concept to come up with. And uh, I, I think it's, I, I think it works pretty well. You know, I mean, it's one of those things when you're really close to it, you can kind of see all the things that you wish were better. Uh, but I'm always, um, I guess, I, I'm always pleased to hear my students be like, oh, actually, it was pretty fun. You know, and they don't, they don't necessarily uh, view it through the same critical lens uh, that I do. And then in my class, you know, I, I use this. It's, it's really intended to be used in introductory astronomy class at the collegiate level. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so in terms of, of, uh, of, of school, ch school age children younger. around the country using it, that's not really the target audience. Wow. Yeah, this is at a bit of a, a higher level, although I think a high school astronomy class uh, could probably use it successfully too. Uh, but it was really intended for, for college uh, courses. And so my students now... Uh, when they play it, uh, I've noticed that it evidently does an extremely good job of teaching the small angle formula, for instance, mm. right? And in it, when they're going through the different missions, they uh, may have to measure the physical sizes of objects. And the small angle formula is one of those things that, that we use to do that. And I think we developed a pretty nifty little uh, interactive that they that they use in the game. Uh, and then like last last year, you know, I could not trip my students up with a small angle formula to save my soul on, on exams. And that was really, that was, that's great, you know, because it seemed like uh, it was really effective at, 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 at teaching some of the course content. So, and just, we've, uh, we've started discussing creating new missions for it. So cool. it's, it, it, it lives, it lives on. It's online, right? So it's, it's online. Yeah. I think, uh. It's, you can get it in like iTunes and the Google Play and all all of that stuff, uh, nice. but it also comes bundled with the with the textbook. So you've also taught a first semester seminar titled "Saving the Appearances: Galileo, the Church, and the Scientific Endeavor." Sounds a little bit like it steps outside of a traditional astronomy class and uh, dips into history. Can you talk a little bit about the course and uh, what you, I guess, try to teach students in it? Yeah, so um, it's, a, it's a core scientific perspective class. So it sits in one of those four core components. And it was a course that I was really excited to teach uh, when I knew I was coming to liberal arts college. Um, so, and it's based, you know, it's, it's loosely based on a course that I saw my PhD advisor teaching at, uh, at Vanderbilt. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's Galileo, and uh, there's this tie-in to Italy, and, you know, I'm always, you know, my family's Italian, and, and so, and he's an Italian astronomer, like one of the first, so there was a, there was a real connection there, you know, like a personal connection for me to Galileo. And then I started uh, learning more about Galileo and his intersection with the church um, and his kind of altercation with the church, uh, and then I got really intrigued. I read, I read David Sobel's book, called Galileo's Daughter, uh, and got really interested into the history uh, and interested in Galileo as a, as a person. And so the course is intended to do a whole lot of different things. And I think my students kind of find that, that challenging, that it's doing all of these different things, because it, for one, needs to illuminate what the scientific endeavor is all about uh, and what we mean when we say scientific knowledge. Uh, and and what the roots are of that and how how a lot of Galileo's writings kind of help lay down 
our first sort of uh, formalized understanding of what modern science is. Uh, but to get to the point where we start talking about Galileo and Galileo's sort of intersection with the, uh, with the church, I want my students to un also understand where the church was coming from. Uh, and so the class has started uh, typically with, with a discussion some, of some of the early philosophers, what the early philosophers thought about the universe, how this earth-centered model got to be so ingrained in, in people's thinking and, um, and how it then got ingrained into the church's mm -hmm. understanding, right? So it, became, it almost became part of the dogma of the Catholic Church by the time you get to, to uh, Galileo's era. And uh, so I want them to I want them to to kind of compare sort of authoritative knowledge, like where something is just being laid down and saying this is how things are because it's written, and you've got the church as this authority, and it's 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 making the interpretation of the scripture for you, and then you have Galileo who's coming along and like here's a process of understanding nature, and this process of understanding nature, which for Galileo was was sort of some sort of, of uh, um, uh, expression of, of God's mind, God's being, right? He was like, to know nature is, is in essence to kind of understand the inner workings of, of God's mind. So he approached it from a very religious aspect, but he thought that nature was a truth, just as the Bible would be a truth. But he started, he tried to reconcile things in an interesting way and saying like, well, these two truths can't really contradict each other. So how do we, how do we weigh the the different, the different forms of knowledge. So I want my students to have a full appreciation of, of how the church developed its understanding, how Galileo had developed his understanding, and then how the two came into conflict with each other. But then in addition to all of that, you know, there are these cultural considerations that come along, but they're also personal considerations. And, and we don't often think of scientists, and especially scientists who lived hundreds of years ago, who we put up on pedestals, put their heads up on pedestals. We don't really think of them as actual people uh, with certain, you know, shortcomings. And, yeah, and so I, part of it is, is about humanizing science and sciences, too, in, in the discussion of, of Galileo. And, uh, I, you know, what I find, it, it's a challenging course to teach. I think students come into that class sometimes feeling like, ah, I pretty much know what I need to know about science. It's a, there's this thing called the scientific method. It's like A, B, C, D, and E, and uh, then you just kind of repeat or, so, or, or something like that. Yeah. And that's a myth, right? The scientific method is an absolute myth in, in my mind. I don't have the scientific method nailed on the wall in my, in my office. Um, the way we come around to, to these scientific understandings are, are really rich and complex and cannot be contained in just something that's, that we refer to as this method. You know, so um, and some of my colleagues might, might bristle at me saying something like that, but, but it really is. When you, when you sit down and think about it, it's a, it's a very complex under, undertaking. And so I always will refer to it as the process of science and, and try it. that's what I'm trying to teach is the process and not really some scientific method. I try to re refrain from using that, uh, that phrase. You're also passionate about your home state of West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in 2013, you organized a series of multidisciplinary events focused on central Appalachia titled Moving Mountains. Tell me about that. Well, so that came, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that, that has really snowballed for me in a lot of different ways. Um, that came out of a, a, a visit by Chris Hedges. Uh, Chris, who is an alum, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist from New York Times. He's not with the Times anymore, but at some point he was also their Middle East uh, bureau chief, right? So, um, and, and was a war correspondent, so has seen the worst of, of humanity. He'd written a book called uh, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt. And in that book, he covered four different regions of the country that he referred to as sacrifice zones. And one of those sacrifice zones was centered on my hometown in West Virginia. And uh, the writing was mostly about the mountaintop removal, mining, a little bit about the coal industry, and then about the um, uh, resulting poverty and uh, the drug addiction. And all of those things kind of like are, have their confluence in, in, in my hometown and the surrounding region. Um, so... <laughs> I had him come as part of the Galileo class, huh. right? Which was a really sort of uh, mind-bending uh, uh, connection to make, but maybe not so mind-bending because for me, what Galileo was doing was standing up to a really powerful institution, 
and uh, that that standing up to a powerful institution can take on many different different forms. And and back home, people are are trying to stand up to a really powerful institu- institution. In this case, the like the coal industry and and um, trying to fight the the serious health effects that go along with with the uh, um, the coal removal, especially in in the way of mountaintop uh, mining. So, so I had um, Chris come to town, and and you know during his visit, you know I had uh, uh, bunches of discussions with some of the artists on campus, uh, some maybe some of the music people, uh, and and what I noticed was that you know, Appalachia is this culturally rich region that is completely underappreciated. And uh, so this idea for this Arts Council-funded uh, series of events kind of came from Chris's, Chris's meeting and then the dis- my ensuing discussions with, with faculty colleagues from across a bunch of disciplines. Uh, and so I put together this series of events, and you know we had uh, a musician slash sort of uh, historian come up and played some songs and told the history of the labor movement in southern West Virginia. And uh, we had a musicologist come. We had an artist from the Beehive Collective, and they had done this huge mural about ex- extraction of coal in, in Appalachia. Um, and we had my political science professor from Emory and Henry come up, and he's he's one of the granddaddies of um, the Appalachian Studies Association. Uh, he came up and gave a talk. I, we must have had like 10 different events. Oh, one of the other events was Chris Vesey's brother, Chris uh, Vesey, who's a religion professor here, his brother was a uh, New York Times journalist, and his beat in the 1970s, when he, he took a little bit of break from being one of their sports columnists, was to be their Appalachian correspondent. And so he was down there when a when an earthen dam broke in Buffalo Creek, uh, and that earthen dam, when it broke, it let all of this uh, slurry, which is the heavy uh, coal ash. Well, it's a mixture of coal ash and and other heavy metals and stuff that are left over from washing the coal. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's those things are everywhere. They're the impoundments. Anyway, this one broke and uh, flooded a community in Buffalo Creek and killed uh, 120 some people in 1973. He was there. He was he was there and was the person who actually broke the story that the coal company knew that that uh, this community was under threat and didn't warn them to evacuate or something like that. So so anyway, he came and talked about his experiences in Appalachia too. And then after doing that whole series, I was like, well, we should have a class about Appalachia. And it could be one of those communities and identities course courses. And last week it got approved uh, by the oh, curriculum wow. committee. So uh, I'm hoping to teach it. Uh, I may not get to teach it in the spring, but uh, academic year of 2021 it'll probably get offered for the first time. Nice. Yeah. So when new students come uh, to Colgate these days, they're placed into one of four residential commons. Um, You're the co-director of the Brown Commons. Can you tell me a little bit about how it all works and what your role is as one of the leaders of uh, one of the four commons? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so yeah, you wow. know, just over. You know, you're, we're we're covering a lot of ground. That's right. I, I'm, I'm a, I feel like I've done. I, I do a lot of things, don't I? So, <laughs> so the the commons. This is a huge initiative, institutional initiative, uh, and it is. It's not anything new, which is one of the first things that I know I needed to communicate to people when we were when, when I would talk to them about this. They're like, well, well, why is Colgate going in this like you know super. Uh, a new direction about these living learning communities and 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 I would say well you know Thomas Jefferson <laughs> when he started the University of Virginia uh, imagined it as this little academical village if you've ever been to to UVA mm-hmm. which is where I was before I came up to, to Colgate there is the lawn which is this UNESCO World Heritage Site actually and the rotundas at one end of it and on the side are what are um uh, little dorm rooms, and in between the dorm rooms are these fairly larger things that they call pavilions. And the pavilions back in the day, back in Jefferson's uh, model, would have been where the faculty would have lived, and then the students would have lived in the little uh, rooms in between the pavilions. Uh, and so, in my mind, you know, the living learning communities are in sense are in essence trying to get back to this this really extreme way of re- of residential education, right? where you're acknowledging that the best way to learn is to learn in community and to learn uh, both inside and out of the cl- inside and outside of the classroom. 
uh, with your with your faculty members. And so for me, that theoretically is is what we're trying to uh, to pull off is to to sort of recreate these academical villages. Now I don't live in I don't live in the dorms right. uh, with the students. Uh, at some schools that have these things, they do. The faculty do live yeah. in the dorms with the, with the students. And and Vanderbilt uh, instituted these living learning communities oh, starting in like 2004, something like that. So they've been doing it for a while. Uh, and they've been really successful to the point where they're starting to build all new residential halls and moving towards a four-year residential uh, experience that, that invokes this living learning community. They're spending upwards of like 550 million dollars on the project so it's order probably order of magnitude more than than what we're doing in, in in some ways but it's a good it's a good model to see um uh, uh you know how successful these things can be uh, i spoke with one of their they call them heads of houses down there in, in their living learning communities and i told him what our model was and 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 he was like well i couldn't imagine trying to do that without living with the students and I was like, well, that's great. I was like, we, <laughs> I live about a mile away. It's, 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 it's pretty close. Um, but I'm on campus all the time now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have a bit of a cold right now, probably because I'm elbow to elbow with students all the time. So if they get a bug, I typically now get a bug uh, as well. And one of the things, though, it's been extremely, it's been ex- extremely challenging, but in some cases, really extremely rewarding. Uh, the challenges come with starting something big and new like this that uh, in essence seeks to shift the culture of a campus, seeks to change the way students see themselves outside of the classroom and what their experiences sh- could be like, and then also seeks to kind of uh, uh, change the experiences of the faculty a little bit too and giving them uh, spaces that are easily accessible to have these more informal interactions with students. And I hope also gets them to think about how do we bring visiting scholars and, and, and folks like that into places where the students are going to be maybe a little bit more relaxed and, and things of that nature. So, well, it's uh, it it right now is is in its infancy, mm-hmm. you know, and I think we're still figuring out what uh, the staffing model should look like for it. But uh, the you know opening of the new dorms has been an absolute game changer for the types of things that we're trying to do in the commons. Uh, those spaces that were mostly tailored for, for what we want to do with the classrooms in, in Burke and the kitchen in Burke and gives us just a natural place to meet the students where they are. And, and we're getting lots more participation than we have in the past couple of years. Nice. So you were also the faculty speaker at Convocation this year for the class of 2023. In that speech, you recited the words of the Brown Commons namesake, Professor Coleman Brown, to quote, Coleman would often say that in every crowd there are seekers, believers, and doubters. And you continued, to my mind, a seeker is one who courageously, passionately, and persistently searches for truth and meaning, justice and moral clarity, inspiration and hope. You also said as a seeker, you'll often find yourself outside of your comfort zone. Can you remember the first time as a professor you felt like you were outside your comfort zone. And how did that, I guess, help you grow? Uh, I am constantly outside of my comfort zone. Uh, and even in, even in classes like my Astronomy 210, where this is stuff that is pretty much in my wheelhouse of expertise, yeah. sometimes I still feel a little bit out of, out of my comfort zone. Um, the Galileo class probably being the one that I have felt most uh, outside of like, what am I, what am I doing? (laughs) Right. Uh, But I think that, I think that's really important for students to see is that uh, they kind of look to us like we are the knowers of everything. And uh, that's not what education is about. It's, it's not necessarily about saying, all right, I have achieved uh, full knowledge, right? (laughs) Right? It is always uh, a pursuit, right? It is always this notion of seeking, that, that you can seek a whole lot of things. You can, you can seek a better understanding. Uh, you know, one of those things that I put in there was this uh, you know, moral clarity and inspiration and justice and, 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 and just truth, because I think truth now is, is something that is getting, is getting just lost. Um, and now, you know, having some philosophical understanding of what the nature of knowledge is then factors in really importantly, maybe more importantly than it has in the past several decades, when we when we um, when I interact with my students, so uh, 
for me, I, I think I'm constantly getting out outside of my comfort zone. Uh, I'm constantly meeting students from different parts of the world, and they're teaching me so much about their their perspective on things. So I'm always being presented with new ideas and, and new ways of, of, of seeing the world. And uh, that makes my job really enjoyable. You know, it's uh, I wish everybody had the opportunity to, to just learn constantly. Uh, and, and, you know, that's one of the things that I want my students to to take away from here is that they will always be learners, you know, that they will be lifelong learners and not to think that, that they are done learning stuff when they get out of here and continue to seek the, seek out those opportunities to learn. But learning requires you to be outside of your comfort zone most often. Uh, and, and I've had these experiences. You know, I have, a stu- I have a student right now who is traveling around the world as part of a Watson Foundation Fellowship. And, um, yeah, I kind of follow what she puts up on Instagram now. And you can see sometimes she's really, I mean, she's pushing it. She's getting out of her comfort zone almost all on a daily basis. She's in a situation that is that is completely new to her. And, um, yeah, I did a little bit of traveling as a graduate student. Uh, my first trip to, to Europe, I, you know, I went pretty much by myself and went through uh, a little bit of Italy and a little bit of France. And I just remember feeling like a fish completely like a fish out of water in almost every context. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was that was tough. That was tough. But, man, that, that was so important to my growth and my preparation for being in situations like that in the future to where you can you can deal with it. You're like, oh, you just kind of like settle into that that level of uncomfort. And in, in the speech I said, you know, that that's when you will most often have these, um, what I say, call, I call them transcendent experiences. When you are in that kind, when you are completely out of your comfort zone, that's when you're going to learn the most. That's when you're going to be, I think, profoundly impacted by by the experiences that you have. And those are the ones that you're going to take with you and remember, you know, for the rest of your life. And so I don't want students to get too comfortable. And people, I think, are fine. I mean, that, that's, that maybe is what a lot of people seek is just having some level of comfort. And, and I guess what I'm trying to do is tell them to to shake that up and always shake it up and always seek out those experiences where they're a little bit uncomfortable because that's that's really where you're going to learn the most. You made it to question 13. So uh, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention your radio program here on WRCU. And you are known on campus for your love of music. Mm-hmm. So tell us who the best living artist is right now that not enough people are listening to. Um, I don't want... I don't want people to listen. I don't want. I don't. You know. I don't want them to be pop stars, right? Uh, but there are a, a couple come to mind, uh, and I think I, I say this a lot on my radio show, which is is called "Getting Down with Brown Commons." Nice uh, is the title mm-hmm. of, of my show, and um, uh, Rhiannon Giddens uh, is is probably one of the most talented people on the planet. It really. I mean, she's she brings a, a sort of a musicologist perspective to the music she performs. She has. She has unearthed um, uh, the African American traditional string band with her group, the Carolina Chocolate Drops, right? That she she was a part of back in the early two thousands, and um, they really they took over the roots music scene by storm. Uh, but the roots music scene is not all that well known, right? So so if you're asking me about people that a person that is super talented that people don't know about, it may be Rhiannon. Now, I, I say that in one breath. She's also won a MacArthur uh, Genius oh, wow. Award, too, right? So some people know how talented she is. But but her she went to Oberlin, um, was in the conservatory there, was classically trained as a singer, uh, but now she's, like, playing old-time music. Um, so I would say if you have never heard of Rhiannon Giddens, Go pick out, uh, go pick up a copy of the Carolina Chocolate Drops early albums, and then you can get one of her her most recent uh, efforts. One was with her her partner, uh, what's his name, Francesco Terizi. He's a percussionist. Hmm. Uh, the two of them have put out this incredible album here recently, as she put out an album with Smithsonian Folkways uh, called "Our Native Daughters," uh, songs of our native daughters with Amethyst Kia who actually has been to campus and played one of our uh, Brown Commons Coffee House shows. And so it's been really exciting to see how some of the artists that we've brought to campus are now going on and becoming like we're pretty prominent in their, you know, in their genres of, of music. The other person 
I, I, don't, know how, I don't know how long we've we been. for we've one. Been the other person is Daryl Scott. Okay. Daryl's playing on Saturday at, uh, at Focus. Uh, not this Saturday. It would be October 4th. And I'm going to be out of town. Uh-oh. I'm not going to get to go see him. But uh, in terms of like being a talent, uh, being a talented songwriter, being a talented musician, uh, and a great having a great voice, Daryl Scott has always been one of my favorites. Well, I guess for like 20-some years, right? Gillian Welch is, would be in that top three, too. So <laughs> That was 13. Thank you All so right. much for the stellar chat, Professor Barry. And make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast. Rate us on iTunes and email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number, with any thoughts or ideas. And let us know if you have any questions that you'd like to have answered. I'm sure we can find someone to help out. Have a wonderful week and keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com and colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.